Good morning. All right. You guys look great this morning. <laughs> You're welcome, Dan. Um, yeah, before we get going, just like a quick word of encouragement. We were kind of rallying around praying before service this morning, and we just asked one question, like, in what ways have you seen God move this last week? And Nothing blesses my heart more than to hear like people talk about how they've watched God show up in their lives. And I just want to remind us this morning that we serve a God that is real, a God that is moving. He's alive and active. And even as we approach this gathering this morning, might I just warn us, it's so easy to come into this moment and think you're going through the motions and doing the thing that you do every single week in order to check the box. But really this morning, you're here to engage the living God. He's alive and active, and we're here to open up his word this morning to sing praise to him and all he deserves. I mean, we're in this season of Advent leading up to Christmas, and there should be some anticipation in us as we know what the outcome is, right? That the Son of God will be born, and that he will live this life, and he will die this brutal death, and he'll be raised again for the sins of mankind to forgive us and to grant us new life. I mean, we have a lot to be grateful for. And so anyway, that's just a freebie up front to say like, this is amazing that we get to do this. Let's not take this for granted this morning. So let me pray for us and then we'll dig in. Jesus, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for each soul represented in this room. We ask Holy Spirit that you come, that you come in power and in might, that you use your word to speak to the hearts of your people. God, as we talk about even injustice this morning and we dig into this passage, the reality, God, is that there's so much we're facing in this world we live in today. And uh, God, it would seem sometimes as though the enemy has an upper hand because it seems like this world is so chaotic. But we know the truth, God, that the battle's already been won. And we live as victors. Um, but also as, as these aliens, Lord, these pilgrims on, on this earth. And I just am asking, Jesus, that you continue to strengthen and mobilize your church. God, as we come into the season of Advent, I pray for your church that it would rise up, that we would know um, the promises set before us, who we are in you, Jesus, and what you have ahead of us. And I pray, Jesus, that we would see droves of people come to know you in a very real way, and that you would just do away with, God, just religiosity, the junk, Lord, the, the traditions, the things we grew up in and that we just repeat for repeating's sake. But might we just have a real thriving relationship with you. And so we give you this time this morning and we invite you to have your way with us, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So uh, if you've been around for the last few weeks, you guys know we've been in the study through the book of Nehemiah. And um, as we continue to dig deeper into this book this morning in chapter 5, um, but we, we've been reminded week in and week out of just how practical and how helpful, how spiritually significant the book of Nehemiah is. It's really quite amazing. And so we've seen how Nehemiah has faced all kinds of crisis even leading up to this moment in chapter 5. So as we get into chapter 5 this morning, we're going to see another kind of crisis show up in the community of God's people, a crisis that confronts like serious, a serious injustice within their community, and it sort of disrupts like the harmony and the health and the unity that existed in 
amongst God's people, even as they're working together on this wall. Um, Last week, we talked a lot about the external opposition that the people of God were facing as they're building this wall, and it made reference to the fact that they got halfway up, they built the wall, and then as they begin to close the breaches, like to, to close the gaps in the wall, like then the opposition just rose even more from Tobiah and from Sambalat. And so as we study this chapter this morning, here's what I want us to see. Like, this is opposition from within now. This is within the the unified people of God. But I want us to see this morning that that injustice really exists. It really does. And as God's people, we actually need to recognize injustice for what it is. We need to be a people who would confront injustice with the truth that we would actually correct it in both word and deed. And that's what I hope we see this morning. So the first thing we need to do as we look at this passage is recognize injustice for what it is. So I want you guys to turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. And, um, and, and you'll see this clearly in verses 1 through 5. Let's read this together. You guys present? All's good? Can we take a deep breath? All right. There we go. Okay. Verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For, for there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. This is a weird kind of obscure chapter that we get into. Like It seems like the last four chapters, there's just been a lot going on. It's kind of building and building and building, and then they actually begin to participate and work on the wall, and then there's this opposition, and it just seems like they're going to rise up in the midst of the opposition and continue to work on the wall. And then they get to this portion right here, and Nehemiah starts to talk about this opposition that's within. Not stuff that's coming from without, but opposition within the community of faith. So we see that here in verses 1 through 5 that this Jewish community was in this really tense situation, right? The, the, the work of rebuilding the wall was intense enough to begin with. They're working day and night. But now they're, they're building it with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other, like we talked about last week. And it was this all-consuming emphasis for the community, like all of their attention is on rebuilding this wall. But naturally, the, the fact that this is all-consuming for them, that it's getting all their attention is actually going to create some tension. And so what happens when tension goes undealt with for too long in our lives? What happens? Stress increases, right? The the, the strain shows. And, And if that stress and that tension continue on for too long, eventually things begin to break. And so that's what we're seeing here in this passage because these people were working almost exclusively on the wall and the rest of the work of life was being neglected, right? They're, they're participating just in working on the wall. Some commentators say that this event was happening near the harvest time, which meant that there were crops that would soon need to be harvested, which also meant um, that there were loans and taxes that were coming due as a result of that harvest. 
But more seriously, in verses 3 and 4, it suggests that the poorest in the community were the ones who were being taken the greatest advantage of. Right? They, they were mortgaging all that they had, their fields, their vineyards, their homes, just to get a grain to eat. They had to borrow money to pay the taxes on those fields that they were mortgaging. They were having to use even their children, it says, as collateral and place them into debt slavery until that debt was paid for. This is seriously a community in crisis at this moment. This seems jacked up, does it not? And and what we'll see in a little bit is that the the Jews, their own countrymen, are the one who are actually contributing to the crisis. This isn't the outside. This is people within their own community of faith. The the situation is so messed up for so many different reasons, right? But not the least of which being that there's this conflict between the the practice that we just see described in this outcry and then also the Mosaic law, specifically um, in in the Mosaic law's call to treat one another as brothers and sisters first and foremost, not as business prospects. And instead of seeing one another as brothers and sisters, they began to see one another as people that they could make money on. They, they looked at everyone as an opportunity to gain wealth from one another, but they didn't see one another as family at this point. And so the, the people of God are this family, first and foremost, right? They're, they're a family to be loved and, and to not be exploited for personal gain. And the same thing goes for you and I. When we talk about the church globally, we talk about the family of God. We're all part of this together. We're one family, brothers and sisters. And so they weren't just simply experiencing the, the, this tension of like a seemingly impossible task of building this massive wall They're actually being treated unjustly while they're doing this seemingly impossible task of building this massive wall. There's also injustice that's that's going on. I once heard a leader um, describe people as rubber bands. And he he went on to say that when you pull a rubber band, you're adding tension or stress to this rubber band. And so the more you increase the tension, the, the greater the, 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 the greater the, the greater the distance that the rubber band stretches, right? Uh, and so the more you increase the tension, the, the wider the rubber band gets. But what happens when the tension on the rubber band becomes way too great? The thing just snaps, like the, the rubber band snaps. And, and the same's true for people. I mean, some of you in this room have probably experienced this in your own life. Everybody has a breaking point of some sort when it comes to stress and when it comes to tension in our life. And that's something that we need to recognize and be sensitive to as well. Not just as we think about where we've been over the last couple of years through a pandemic and through elections and whatnot, but way before then, tension existed in our world. And, and we've all experienced like different degrees of this tension in our world and stress. For some of us, that tension, that stress that we feel is actually paired with like other forms of unjust treatment that go back like generations. Like we've seen and experienced injustice in our life. It's, it's right, for example, um, to, to point to the experiences of like members of the African American community or the Native American communities as well. Like this is frustration and, and anger that's rooted in unjust treatment that goes back centuries, not just a few years, but centuries. And so we would be an unwise people 
to ignore the angle, the anger that comes from people who are part of these communities, like what they feel due to the injustices that they've experienced. It would be wise for us to actually hear people's frustrations, their anger, their injustices. It would be wise for us to listen to that. Uh, and it's also right to, to point, uh, it's, it's also right to point to these all too frequent incidences of like physical and psychological and spiritual and sexual abuse that occur in families and honestly even have occurred in the church over decades and decades and decades. And tragically, so many of them have been like unignored or have been ignored. Like they've been explained away, they've been diminished. And man, as I was thinking about injustice that exists, some of you have lived that out, you've felt it, you've seen it, you've experienced it. And as I was thinking about it this morning, I was thinking like, I really pray to God that one, like we, we are a church that truly sympathizes with people that have felt injustice, experienced injustice, seen injustice in their life. That we don't just walk by, that we're a people that notice it. And I'm sorry that you felt that. But I also pray that we're a church that would actually not just see the injustice, not just know that it's happening, but be a people that will step in and try to find solutions to help, to try to come alongside of those that are experiencing the injustice. I mean, what are they dealing with in this moment? Nehemiah's ticked. He's upset because his people are turning on one another. And I don't know about you, but specifically in the last three years of my life, I've watched the church turn on itself more times than I have in the 40 years of my life prior. Where it seems like, man, our opposition is small when we look at the opposition from the outside. The greater opposition that we are facing is actually from within, where the church is turning on itself. It's falling apart at the seams. But these forms of injustice that I'm talking about, whether that be um, racial injustice or whether that be even like physical or spiritual, sexual abuse that happens in, in families or amongst people, like these aren't the only forms that have, of injustice that exist in our world today. And these aren't the, even the kind of injustices that Nehemiah is talking about in this passage because the context of this passage describes injustice tied to economics. It's financial injustice, right? And so we need to be aware of this ongoing presence of these kinds of injustices right now, like in the community where God's placed us right now. There's injustices happening all around us. Are our eyes open? Do we see these things? What is the church's response to the injustices that we see right now in our community? We need to be aware that, that there's literally entire industries that have been created in our world to prey on those that are the most economically hard-pressed. I was driving around the other day, and I, if you work for one of these companies, I'm really sorry, but um, I, I happened to see like a payday loan place, you know? And I just thought to myself, like, what a crappy business. I get on my phone, I'm like, I wonder how many of those exist in our community. Well, within a 10-mile radius, there's 20 of them. Again, sorry if you own those or you work at one of those, but I, I can't see that as, like, just. That, that, that somebody who's already hard-pressed is going to go to get a payday loan from that place and be taxed on that payday loan. It's just going to continue to set them back generation after generation after generation. It's hard to see 
businesses like this, like perpetuate this cycle of poverty that lasts generations, even in our own community. I'm sure I could go on and find tons more examples of this kind of story, this stuff, but for us, I just want to bring the point down to this, that injustice is real, and it's happening even in North Idaho. <laughs> Many of us think we're in this pocket where, you know, somehow we live in, like, the, the second Eden, you know what I mean? Like, this area is protected from it. That's just not the truth. There's things going on around us constantly. And it takes many forms, injustices in this world. And it exists, again, like right now, even in ways that we can't perceive or things that we can't realize. But as long as sin remains present in this earth, in this life, as long as sin remains as the default sort of um, mode of our human heart, our human existence, injustice is always going to exist. But that doesn't mean that, that we, as God's people, should be accepting of its existence, right? We shouldn't be people that just allow this to happen, watch it, and don't try to figure out what our role is to come step into it and actually help change things. And so as we're confronted with like examples of injustice, we don't want to become numb or deaf to the cries of the people that are experiencing it. Like, I don't know about you, but like the older I get and the more emotional strain I've faced in my life, the more numb I become and jaded I become. And that's, that's frustrating for me sometimes. You can ask my wife. I'll often say like, I hate it that my heart has gotten like that over the years. That, that we can become a calloused people who really don't care about anything but ourselves and choose to numb our pain so we don't actually feel anything with anybody in this life. We need to recognize injustice for what it is, and then we need to confront injustice with the truth. And this is what Nehemiah does. So what we begin to see in, in verse six of chapter five, he says this in verse six. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I was very angry when I heard this. So confronting injustice with the truth begins with this like emotional response from, from Nehemiah, right? He's very angry. And it's actually a proper response to what he's dealing with. Nehemiah wasn't just angry. I mean, it highlights the fact that Nehemiah was very angry, and this is important. He was very angry, but Nehemiah did not allow his anger to determine his response in this situation. Instead, you see in verse 7 that he takes counsel within himself. I love that part, right? It, that he seriously considers the matter, but he turns to himself to give him the best counsel possible. How many of you guys have experience with that same kind of counsel? Uh, so Nehemiah is angry, but in his anger, Nehemiah doesn't sin. And that's sort of a principle that we should look, uh, that, that we look back on in, in chapter four, as you saw like the discouragement that the people faced with Sambalot and with Tobiah and this whole crew that are opposing the building of the wall. And this is really important for you and I as well, right? That as we seek to sort of be a people that confront injustice, we need to be wise in how we respond to the injustice that's around us. Like, what do we do when God makes us aware of these things? Because sin cannot go unaddressed. But we're, when we're confronted with an injustice, when we see it, 
We need to make sure that we have our facts straight, that we understand the situation properly or as best we can, or else our response can end up being equally as inappropriate as the offense. We can become a people that are so bitter and jaded that our response to the people that are bitter and jaded is that we respond out of anger in the same bitterness and the jadedness that they have. So the same accusation we're pointing out at them, we're living out as well. We need to be a people that can guard and protect our hearts. Nehemiah is angry, but Nehemiah doesn't respond in his anger. He actually spends some time, as, takes counsel upon himself, right? Sit, think about this. So Nehemiah is angry. He, he, he knows how fragile, like how, how much the, the, the community of faith that he's in is like falling apart. He, he knows how easy it is for the, their unity to just like start breaking down. And he knew that he had to do something to protect this community, these people. Like they were brothers and sisters. And so after he considers the matter, he takes action. And he actually does it by accusing the nobles and the officials, it says. And he says in verse 7, I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. Mic drop, right? Nehemiah makes this really strong accusation. He, he's accusing the wealthy among them of behaving in this transactional matter, right? That the relationship between themselves and the poor in their community was strictly a business relationship. You know that phrase, like, it's not personal, it's business, right? You guys have heard that? It's not personal, it's just business. This was basically how they were living their lives. Like living as though that, that mindset sort of freed them from having to show any compassion or concern for their brothers and sisters that were in really hard up places. They were lending to the poor in such a way that it was legally okay, like even by the law to some degree. In, in Deuteronomy 23:19, it does allow them to, it says, require an asset as a pledge against a loan. So they could have a collateral situation. But they were also doing it in a way that was morally wrong. They were, they were like a payday loan shop, basically. They were helping the poor, but they were exacting a heavy fee for the help that they were giving them. They were taking everything that they had. And if that wasn't enough, these rich landowners were actually selling their own people into indentured servitude to foreigners. And some of these people that were being sold into this debt slavery were the same people who had been previously bought out of this sort of slavery themselves. And so what was their response? What did the nobles do in this massive assembly? In verse 8, it says... They were silent and couldn't find a word to say. They didn't know what to do. So don't misunderstand that statement, right? The, the language in this is really important. It wasn't that they chose to say nothing. It wasn't just like they were like, eh, keeping our mouths shut. They were silent because they could be nothing but silent. <laughs> They were appalled, like they were sort of in awe with regards to this accusation that he was making because it was making because it was true. 
They were silent because the, when, when the weight of conviction like literally fell upon them, they were shocked. I read a quote from somebody that said that when we confront injustice, silence does not necessarily mean resistance. It may simply mean that God is at work, that his spirit is bringing conviction to the offender and preparing them for what is next to come. And you see that sort of starting in verse 9 where Nehemiah says, So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? And so when we confront injustice with the truth, we need to make sure that the stakes are clear, right? And that's what you see here. The the silence of these nobles leaves Nehemiah with sort of an opening so that he could confuse them in their own game of sorts. They couldn't believe how morally jacked up it was to do what it is, what it was that they were doing. They were stunned. You're right. He says, the thing you're doing is not good. It's not right. Or more strongly, it's wrong. Like, it's wicked. What you're doing is evil. So rather than continue to do what's wrong, he says, here's what you should do that is right. He says, shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the taunt of our foreign enemies? Isn't this the thing? Isn't this thing that you're doing like so reprehensible, he says, that your enemies actually find you offensive? Isn't the thing that you're doing so vile that your enemies are actually disgusted by the thing that you're doing? And not only that, but they're the deeds of someone who has no fear of God. And that's the foundation of Nehemiah's rebuke. Like, it's not the societal norms, right? It's not cultural or political correctness. His rebuke is rooted in the fear of God, and the fear of God means to uphold God as being holy and perfect, to have a a reverential awe for God himself. Honestly, fear is the best way to describe it because his ways and his being are just and right and true in every respect, aren't they? Now, all sin, from, from the greatest to the smallest, is based in this sort of resistance to the righteous rule of God. Like, that's sin in and of itself in this world. It's a result of people doing what's right in their own eyes. Like the proverb says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. It's a result of people having zero fear of God. And so this resistance ultimately needs to be confronted with the gospel of Jesus. I mean, this is where Jesus steps in. In fact, that's what God has done by sending Jesus into this world, is he's actually rebuked humanity's rejection of its creator, is what God did. Through Jesus' life, through his death, through Jesus' resurrection, like a death that was a sacrifice that was rooted in the true and the perfect fear of God. So I want to ask you guys something this morning. Do you have this sort of healthy, holy, reverential fear of God? Do you have that? Something that would stop you dead in your tracks when you see something like this taking place. In a few minutes, we're actually going to take communion. Where we get to remember like, the, the, the death of Jesus, his body broken, his blood shed. For, for you and I, like the greatest human injustice ever committed upon Jesus himself so that God's justice could be upheld. Like that was the purpose of it all. 
And so when we do communion this morning, I actually want you guys to, I want to encourage you to take some time before you come to the table to get your amazing little wafer and your amazing little cup of juice. And I want you to consider this this morning. Is the fear of God present in your life? As you partake in the blood and the body of Jesus Christ this morning, do you have a reverential fear and awe for the God whose body and blood you're partaking in this morning? Verse 10. Um, in, in verse 10, Nehemiah goes on and he sort of does something that's disarming to these other nobles and and honestly, it's kind of shocking to me. But he includes himself as one who's guilty of these injustices that Nehemiah is calling out. He says in verse 10, moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. I love it how we continue to see Nehemiah include himself in the people that he's calling out. I mean, this has happened multiple times in the first four chapters. Remember that in, in verse seven, Nehemiah, he, he carefully considers this matter, which means that as he considers the situation, he also considered what his actions would be in this crisis. Like where had he failed to live up to God's standards in his own life? If I'm gonna call them out, I'm gonna point the finger at myself First, where am I guilty, just as guilty as everybody else is that I'm pointing the finger at? And so that sort of leads us to another point that we need to understand when we seek to confront injustice with truth. When we seek to confront injustice with truth, it actually requires a degree of self-awareness for us, right? This is what Jesus was getting at in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, when he condemns these hypocrite, the, the hypocrite, the, uh, when he condemned hypocritical judgment in Matthew chapter seven, that we should be aware of our own sin, we should be aware of how we might even be complicit in certain sins in our own lives, and if there's ever a place where we need God to do what only he can do, it's here. Like, we need the Holy Spirit to break through the, the blinders like, of a lifetime of sin, the blinders that our sin has actually placed on us. We need Jesus to help us to be aware of where we're missing the mark first or where we are like equally as guilty of the same things that we're gonna accuse somebody else of. We need to own those things for ourselves even as we condemn those things in the world. I mean, what is the world's greatest judgment against the church? That you're hypocrites. Why would they think that? Because you call us out for doing things that you yourself are guilty of doing. What would it look like if the church would be the first to call ourselves out? I mean, that would be backwards to us because we want to protect ours all the time. But what would it look like if first we said, like, I'm just as guilty as you are? Like, I desperately need the blood and the body of Jesus on that cross, his resurrection power within me. I desperately need Jesus in order to make up for this because I'm just as guilty. And so Nehemiah, from his self-awareness and his sort of inclusion of himself in this, in this need to, to repent of taking advantage, advantage of others, he, he issues this strong challenge in the rest of this 
verse. This is what he says in verses 10 and 11. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them. Like Nehemiah wants this unjust activity to stop. In fact, not just stop, I actually want you to return back everything that you took from them. That's the way forward. And so he sort of reminds us that that, that confronting injustice with the truth requires some sort of action, some sort of call to change. He He doesn't just say, stop it. Like he says, this is what we need to do instead. And Nehemiah sort of appeals to them as one of their own. He says, let's stop charging this interest. And then he takes it a step further, commanding that everything that's been taken be given back. All their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their home, everything along with all the interest that they've been charged, given back. And so he was calling the rich to sacrifice for the well-being of the community as a whole. To put the needs of others and the unity of the community of faith, of God's people, ahead of their own comfort, ahead of their own affluence, ahead of their own interests. And that should be a really challenging word for all of us today. To confront injustice the way that Nehemiah did would have been so uncomfortable to do for him to stand up and make the statement to call them out. Like it was a risky decision for Nehemiah to do this. But the risk was way worth it, right? Confronting injustice is always worth the risk that it takes. It always takes somebody who's willing to wave the flag and step in, but not just somebody who wants to wave the flag, somebody actually wants to follow up what it is they're gonna say and feel and know is wrong with an action that's gonna help to make things right. Is there a place in your life where God might be calling you to confront an injustice with truth? Is there a place in your life where God might be calling you to confront somebody, to call them to repentance, to do so boldly and humbly? In verse 12, Nehemiah says that the nobles heard and they responded. They said that we will restore these and require nothing from them We will do as you say. Like, that's really good news, right? That's God at work, that he's changing their hearts. When people see, when when people hear, when people respond, they actually begin to change. Like, they recognize their responsibility to this community as a whole. And then Nehemiah does something else. He presses a little bit deeper with them, right? They made a promise that they would do right by the people, but he takes their promise and he has them pledge this oath. And basically he does this because he understands that a promise made in sort of an emotional moment isn't guaranteed to be followed through with, right? And so he wanted some more teeth to this. So in verse 13, we read, he says, I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. And praise the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. And so what Nehemiah has done by shaking out his robe is he, he's effectively kind of invoked this curse, right? Um, the, this commentator put it this way. He said, the shaking of the folds of his robe was a symbolic act 
to announce effectively the curse upon those who disobeyed, that God would take away their houses and their possessions. And so essentially, Nehemiah was saying, if you don't do this, if we don't do this, may God take everything that we have. And if they didn't obey, they would lose everything, is what Nehemiah is saying. And that they would be, it would be God's just judgment upon them if they weren't going to do what's right and give things back. This is the kind of language that you actually see later on in the New Testament when Jesus sends out the 12 to proclaim this coming of the kingdom and to preach repentance in Mark chapter 6. In those towns where they were not welcome, it says that they were to shake the dust off of their feet as a testimony against them and as a warning of judgment. But again, here's the good news in all of this. It sounds like a downer. But the, the people, the, the whole assembly, they all took this oath. They agreed that they should be judged if they didn't actually follow through, if they didn't do what they said that they would do. And sort of in this amazing act of God, you see this good news that they did as they promised and then as they praised the Lord. And that's what we want to see when we confront injustice with the truth. We want to see transformation actually happen. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance isn't just a raise your hand, I commit it in my heart. Repentance is a 180 degree turn. It's a decision to not just turn in your heart, but to actually change your ways. I was going this way, and I'm choosing now to go this way. And so we recognize injustice for what it is. We confront injustice with the truth. And then there's one last thing, that, that we correct injustice in word, but we also do it in deed. In verses 14 through 19, it says this. And I'll, I'll end with this. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily ration, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. What's Nehemiah saying? He's saying he had the right to do what every governor before him had done. To get provided for, to get waited on hand and foot, to be given everything. And that Nehemiah chose to not take from anybody. He actually provided for himself. I have no idea where Nehemiah got all of this money to provide for himself the way that he did. But the dude's wealthy. And he decides he's gonna actually take care of 150 people. He's gonna provide their wine for them and their food for them. He's not gonna take the, the allotted allowance as a governor. Like, he's gonna choose to do this differently. He's not gonna take from the people. Now, in this, these last, like, six verses, um, 
I don't want to comment a ton on these because there's actually several commentators that say that there's sort of like a punctuation point on everything that's been discussed. That it was sort of like a take that, you know. And lastly, I'm not taking anything from you guys. I'm going to provide for all of this myself. But in these verses, we're reminded of this final sort of principle that I talked about. That, that we're to correct injustice both in word and deed. Nehemiah didn't just talk about it. Nehemiah actually did something about it. And in the verses prior, we saw how Nehemiah talked about, like he talked this really good game, right? Like how he confronted injustice with the truth. And here again, we're reminded that he wasn't just all talk, that he actually led by example. He did not walk in the ways of the people who had gone before him by placing the same burdens upon them that previous governors had done. He didn't even take what was rightfully his as governor. He showed the people a better way, a way that was actually motivated by his love and his fear for God, his fear for the Lord, this desire to be blameless amongst the people. If I'm gonna call you out, I'm pointing the finger at myself and I'm gonna walk in the same ways that I'm challenging you to walk in. And so when it comes to how we respond to injustice, That's my prayer for us as individuals, for us as a church, that we don't want to be the the, the sort of people who recognize the things that are happening around us in this world and we see injustice and be a people that do nothing about it except for see it and post on Facebook and Instagram about it. But a people who would allow love to actually lead us to action, to be people that would step in and be the hands and the feet of Jesus in this world. How is the world gonna know Christ? Not necessarily by you standing on a street corner just telling them about Jesus. Most often it happens when you use your hands and your feet and you get your hands dirty and you serve and you love and you wash people's feet and you come alongside of them. You see the injustice that's been done to them and you you say things like, you know what, I've been guilty of throwing that at you even and I myself want to change first. What does it look like for us to walk in the fear and the love of the Lord? We don't want to be the sort of people that even James condemns in James chapter 2, who see a brother or sister without clothing or food and say, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed. We're not going to turn a blind eye. And honestly, that, it it sort of frustrates me in the church today, and I say that big C, globally, not just here. I'm just, but it frustrates me in how, like, we can get so fired up about things and do nothing about it. We can profess that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of our life, that we would give up anything for him, but then not actually give up anything for him. That we could be a people that would see, I see hatred, I I see injustice, I see people being treated wrongly, And I think that Christians, followers of Jesus, should be the ones to step in and be part of the solution and then sit back and say, but my life is too busy. I don't have X, Y, Z to do what it is that needs to be done. What does it look like for us to be a people that allow that conviction to sink in, like Nehemiah, to counsel amongst himself, ponder these things, and how is it that the Holy Spirit would actually lead us 
to action? How do we begin to be a people that are sort of boots on the ground, that respond in word, and a people that respond in deed? And so church, let us consider this this morning, right? Where is Jesus calling us to respond to a practical need today, somewhere around you? Where is he asking you to step in? Where is there a need that needs to be addressed that we may not be aware of? Are you asking those questions? And if you're here this morning and you're somebody who's struggling, you find yourself in a difficult situation, you're in this serious issue and struggling right now, come talk to somebody. Let us be a people that would actually want to step in and try to figure out how to help to come alongside of and not be a people that just talk about being the hands and feet of Jesus and loving others the way that Christ loved us, but never actually putting anything to action in that way. I want to pray about those things. As we take communion this morning, what an amazing honor we have. I'm going to invite the band to come up here. When we take communion, something literally has shifted in my heart in the last two years when it comes to communion. I will admit, for years for me, this was a formality. The minute the elements were distributed, it was like I grab it. Jesus, thank you for you know, your body broken and your blood shed and, you know, pound it, and then like worship and go home. But in the last two years, there's been something really sweet for me about this moment. There's only a handful of things that you see that the early church did that rallied them together, right? They studied the word, they broke bread with one another, fellowship was important, baptism, communion, like these were the sort of anchors and the pillars of the early church, For 2,000 years, this is something that the church has been unified in when theologically we're all over the map on a bunch of things. What we can say is that Jesus, the night before he went to his brutal death, had one last meal with his disciples. And at that meal, Jesus took some bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup the wine, and then he said, and drink this, this is my blood shed. And then what does Jesus go on to say after that? Do this in remembrance of me. So as we participate in communion this morning, this is not a formality. You come together with millions upon millions of people over the last 2,000 years that have said, this is what we all are unified on his body broken, and his blood shed for us. And when we do this, we come together and we acknowledge that whatever may try to divide us in this life, we will continue to be unified by the body and the blood of Jesus. What an amazing thing we get to do. If you'd stand with me, I want to pray for us. And then I'm going to invite you forward to Come grab the elements, grab them, go back to your chair. And there's a couple questions I'd like for you to ask yourself this morning. Before you eat that cute little wafer and drink that amazing grape juice, ask yourself these questions this morning. What significance do these things have in my life? How will this work? change the way that I work out there. And the second question is this, if this is so great and it's changed you so much, 
where are the pockets of situations that the Holy Spirit is making aware to you in this world today that he's maybe asking you to stop talking about, but to start actually doing something about it, to act on it. Where are those things? And some of you know those things. Even as I mentioned them this morning, you know what they are. And I want to pray for us that as we leave these walls this morning, like the church isn't here 99.9% of our time is spent out there actually practicing what it is we talk about. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you um, that we get to come together around these elements, Lord. Your blood shed for us and your body broken. And what we remember this morning, Jesus, is not that you died this brutal death, undeserving death on a cross, We do remember the sacrifice. We do remember the forgiveness of our sins through that action. But remember, we remember the power, Jesus, that you did not stay on that cross, that death couldn't keep you down, that the resurrection life of God actually raised you from the dead. And this morning, we acknowledge that, man, we seriously need some resurrection life in our lives this morning. As we look around at this world and it seems as though it's going to hell in a handbasket, I struggle sometimes to wonder if we can change anything. And what I know, Jesus, is that we can't, but you did. And I pray this morning as we take communion that we're reminded of how strong we are in you, how bright your church is in really dark times how amazing the birth of that little boy in a manger really was, how significant it was. How powerful we are as a church as we begin to act on the power of Christ in our lives to stop being a religious people that talk about it and read about it to a people that actually read it and talk about it and are convinced enough that it's true that we're actually going to do something with it. And so I pray for us that your power would go with us, Jesus, even as we take communion this morning. Ignite your church. Ignite us, like literally light us on fire. Burn deep down in our guts. Convict us of the areas in our life where we've turned away from you, Jesus where we've blocked you out of, where we've compartmentalized and just left certain things to you and certain things for our own. But this morning, we want full surrender, Jesus. We want to give it all to you. We ask you to come and have your way, Jesus, to change us, transform us, renew us. We want the new life that you offered. We don't want parts of the old life. We want all new. And so I pray this morning that we have that that you'd encourage us this morning, Jesus, that you'd fan the flame that you ignited within us, Jesus, that as we take communion this morning, we'd be greatly encouraged and humbled and grateful for the work of Jesus on that cross and the power that raised him from the dead that's been offered to us so that we can walk in it, that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in this world today the way that you intended for us to be. And so I pray, Jesus, for your power to come upon your church. I pray, Jesus, for 
those in this room that do not know you, that maybe this is the first time they're hearing this gospel message about Jesus, the significance of his life and his death and his resurrection, the forgiveness of sin, the fact that they can entrust their life into your hands and believe that you are Lord and master over their lives and surrender their lives to you, that you will fill them up with your spirit and empower them to live a life after you, Jesus, that they can walk away from the life of, for themselves, that they've been buried in for years, that they can be forgiven and freed and walk in the newness of life that you've offered them. And I pray that would happen for those that would call upon your name this morning. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. As you feel led, come forward and feel free to grab the elements this morning and then go back to your chair and spend some time with Jesus and then we're gonna worship together and you'll be dismissed.